Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and the Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, academics, innovators, and those doing boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. My name is Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. Over the last few years, we have noticed an increase in the number of questions regarding democracy, its institutions, civic responsibilities, and how all of this interacts and meshes together. And so the Jackson Center's program theme for this year is Democracy on Trial. And we are focused on the challenges to, pressures on, and opportunities for democracy and democratic institutions, both here in the United States and globally. And these are not new questions. Robert H. Jackson wrote and spoke on democracy during his tenures as the United States Attorney General, as the United States Supreme Court Justice, and as the Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. During this year, we are convening conversations about democracy, U.S. and global institutions, voting rights, the Constitution, the U.S. Supreme Court, and much more. This year, there will only be one tea time each month on the fourth Thursday, and we hope that each of these programs inspires you to have conversations with your family, friends, and colleagues, and to seek out ways to add your voice or make changes in your communities. And for those of you watching this live, Remember, you can ask your questions at any time in the Facebook chat. Today, I am pleased to be in conversation with Professor Erica Goldberg to talk about free speech, misinformation and truth, and our contemporary challenges with the First Amendment free speech portion. Erica is a professor of law at the University of Dayton School of Law, and her scholarship focuses on the intersection of tort law remedies and First Amendment rights. Erica is a former Robert H. Jackson Legal Fellow at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Erica, thank you so much for joining me for tea today. I'm very excited to be here with my tea. Perfect. Well, cheers to you as we get started. And so I thought it might be helpful to orient our audience a little bit about your research. I know I just described it as the intersection of tort law and First Amendment. And so maybe if you could unpack that for our audience. Absolutely. So I write about First Amendment principles as in general and sort of philosophical ideals animating the First Amendment, but also specifically as they interact with civil liability. So the tort system involves what we might call speech torts, defamation, harassment, privacy intrusions. How do we balance providing civil remedies for people for violations of discrete rights as against our First Amendment principles and the importance of sort of freedom as against governmental censorship? Was there something in particular that interested you to get into this work? How did how did this come to be? Yeah, I guess I've always been fairly enamored of free speech principles. If I didn't go to law school, I wanted to be a journalist. And I've always been a little bit pathologically obsessed with truth and the search for truth. It kind of gives my life purpose, I think, that that kind of search. And so thinking through what we're allowed to say and how we express ourselves and how we get to finding truth has always been kind of a fixation of mine. And and this is the best sort of legal way to get into those questions. It sounds like you and I had relatively similar paths as well. I was also a journalism major and then went to law school with the idea of I wanted to be the New York Times First Amendment lawyer. That was the path I thought I was heading down. Well, so let's talk about free speech values. And you have done a fair amount of writing on these. So I would love for you to, you know, sort of lay the groundwork as to what do we mean when we say free speech values? 
Yeah, and part of the issue, I think, in public discourse is that the public doesn't have sort of specific language for addressing these issues and for parsing out some of the nuances of these issues. So on the one hand, we have First Amendment doctrine, which is the legal framework that mostly the Supreme Court has decided, but it gets decided through the lower courts as well, about what the government can and cannot restrict when it comes to speech, and even what is speech versus, say, conduct, which is more regulable. Then we have what we call free speech values. So I think of free speech values as the principles behind the First Amendment, the rationales behind the First Amendment. So they would apply kind of throughout society. Only the government can actually violate the First Amendment because of the state action requirement, the Constitution for the most part only applies to government action. But free speech values affects how we all interact with each other. And I would say these values and sort of the reasons we have the First Amendment are things like legitimizing our democracy, right? If we don't all have a voice, then our votes are not well-informed or there's a view of kind of expressive autonomy. In order to be fully realized human beings, we all deserve the right to express ourselves as long as that expression doesn't become, say, conduct. And so, uh, you know, there's open-mindedness, there's the search for truth. Like These free speech values are so important to society as a whole, which is part of why they've been enshrined in the First Amendment, but we can think of them to the extent you believe in them as applying kind of within general public discourse, but if certain institutions, private institutions or private individuals don't believe in those, that doesn't make it a violation of the First Amendment. It's just sort of somewhat of an intrusion to our notions of free speech values. And I think, as you said, to start that out, this is where the public discourse sort of loses some track sometimes is that I would say the common thought or certainly one of the more vocal thoughts at this point is anytime anybody tries to stop you from saying something or you feel like they're stopping you from saying something, these people start screaming about this is violating my First Amendment rights, not really paying attention to the doctrine piece separate from that values piece. Yeah, and I mean, the major problem is when the government restricts speech, at least from a constitutional perspective, I believe this to be true also. And the reason that's the major problem is because the government has a monopoly on force. So they can really just clear out certain viewpoints from entering public discourse, whereas no private entity or private individual has the ability to do that. And in fact, these private entities often have their own First Amendment rights. So people get upset. And, and I understand why they get upset, because these private companies and private individuals have a lot of power and in some sense do operate as kind of public squares for, I mean, metaphorical public squares for speaking. But they also have their own First Amendment rights, which means they, to some degree, get to decide who speaks and does not speak on their platforms because, you know, that implicates free speech values as well. I think part of what's going on is that people don't necessarily understand this distinction between free speech doctrine and free speech values. I also think part of what's going on is that people use these terms in a slippery way, potentially to inflame others, but also because I think people are also rightly concerned about erosions of free speech values. But then the whole discussion becomes, well, this isn't an actual First Amendment problem or not. And if we could talk about this more specifically, then we could say, okay, this is a First Amendment problem. This is not a First Amendment problem, but potentially it is just a problem for public discourse otherwise or not. And let's speak on those terms. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So in your research and writing, one of the concepts that sort of was intriguing to me was this thought of consequentialism. And I would love for you to explain that to our audience, because that certainly helped me sort of, you know, parse out some of these challenges. Yeah, so I wrote this article, Free Speech Consequentialism, which talks about how do we regulate or can we regulate the harms that speech causes? And there's a way in which the court has said, you cannot focus on the harms that the speech causes, right? Because if you think about speech in this consequentialist way, consequentialism being 
judging the morality of something or the legality of it based on the harm it causes or its consequences or social welfare. And consequentialism is distinguished from what we call deontology, which is where you judge things based on inherent principles. So we like the First Amendment for consequentialist reasons, for instrumentalist reasons. It fosters democracy. It helps the search for truth. We also believe in the First Amendment for deontological reasons. We say like, you know, individuals with autonomy deserve some sort of expressive ability, right? Now, whether or not you favor the First Amendment for consequentialist reasons or for deontological reasons, you have to think about the fact that the First Amendment causes a lot of consequentialist harms. Protecting a bunch of harmful speech, which I believe we should do, and also the, con <laughs> the Constitution wants us to do, but it does cause a lot of actual social harms. So then the question is, how do we think about those harms when can we regulate those harms? And, and I propose this framework where we can only regulate those harms when those harms mirror conduct harms instead of speech harms. So you can't regulate speech just because it offends people, because that is a specific speech harm, right? The values of speech are that it can maybe provoke people or you know inspire people or things like that. But certain types of speech does get regulated because the harms it causes, the outcomes of those speech, really closely mirror the way that conduct operates, right? And so you can regulate speech once it rises to the level, the government, I mean, can regulate speech once it rises to the level of incitement, because incitement is directed to or reasonably likely to cause imminent lawless action. So it's not the message of the speech we're targeting, it's not the emotional impact of the speech we're targeting, but what we're targeting is with incitement or with true threats or other categories of unprotected speech, what we're targeting is the fact that action is very imminent. As opposed to most speech, which part of the reason it's protected is because its connection to action is attenuated, right? There's several layers. I mean, even if the speech is extremely offensive, there's several layers before it's causing concrete, direct, specific, non-emotional harm. Right. Yes. And so it's, as you said, oftentimes speech is designed to provoke or we should be listening to opinions we disagree with because that helps us kick the tires on what we actually believe. It might open up some other thinking or another avenue that we hadn't explored. And so it feels almost like to regulate speech for a speech harm would be akin to trying to regulate someone's thoughts. So it's certainly more challenging and certainly the jurisprudence on regulating thoughts is, uh, is, is pretty well settled that that's not something you can do. So... <laughs> And it's really tough because at this point in history, we are very concerned with mental health and there's been attention to mental health and psychological health and sort of emotional well-being in a way that we haven't experienced before. Uh, so I have this other article called Emotional Duties about this, right? Why do we treat emotional harm in tort law differently than physical harm? And it is the case that emotional harm can be quite devastating and lasting. And, you know, the Supreme Court decided Snyder versus Phelps, where the Westboro Baptist Church was protesting at these military funerals and really justifiably upsetting people who were grieving with their signs and their picketing. And still that speech, which I think every member of the Supreme Court thought was pretty heinous speech, still that speech was protected. So we're really considering, for the most part, if an issue touches upon a public concern, it really doesn't matter how much it affects people emotionally, because that is the entire point of speech, is to rouse people emotionally, make them think and feel. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So I guess the question, and I confess I have been wrestling with this, as we are thinking through free speech values, separate from the free speech doctrine, should we be considering more regulation in order to sort of preserve those values? Are there categories of speech? And obviously, like I said, this doesn't fall under the First Amendment, so I would love your thoughts too on what this might fall under, but is there the need for more regulation to preserve freedom? So when you say more regulation to preserve freedom, you mean governmental regulation? I or, start there. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, and what do you mean by preserve freedom exactly? Well, so I think what I am thinking through is 
what has been what has been worrying me is how separate our streams of information are becoming and how siloed they are already and how if you never want to hear an opinion you disagree with you can probably figure out a way to do that and so what where i where my thinking has been going is in do we need a better definition of news and is that tied somehow to truthfulness and so you know so are there are there some are there ways we should be changing how we're thinking about some of this yeah let me present a couple of perspectives because there are just such a wide range of views on this and i as well am going back and forth in my head about this as news just keeps happening but if we are talking about governmental efforts to affect the landscape of the marketplace of ideas, then that would implicate free speech doctrine, right? Like there used to be laws where, where they said, well, if a newspaper publishes an editorial on one side, it has to publish an editorial on the other side. And those were considered for the most part unconstitutional as an intrusion on the newspaper's own free speech rights. So any effort to even sort of require the media or individuals to be quote unquote fair and balanced would be tantamount to governmental censorship and likely would be struck down as unconstitutional. But that means that the government to some degree has to stay out of what you identify as a pervasive problem, which is the polarization of media, which is you know not just outright lies, which are a problem, but sort of the selective cherry picking of facts that I think both the left and the right, if we're gonna reduce this to a political spectrum, right? Both the left and the right are getting. And the other options, if the government cannot deal with this, and, and we can talk about whether or not the government can deal with this. My baseline assumption is that the government mostly is not constitutionally permitted to be dealing with affecting the marketplace of ideas in this way. But we can have social media platforms themselves deal with it. This has by and large not been particularly successful because so, you know, Facebook has prohibitions on hate speech. The government cannot really restrict hateful speech because that's discriminating on the basis of viewpoint. So, you know, you, you can say, I mean, I don't recommend it, but you can say any number of hateful things and, you know, in your own home or even in public. And as long as it's not true threats or incitement or something like that, it's totally protected. Facebook doesn't want that on its page. It restricts hate speech. But the problem with doing that and the reason we kind of want the government to stay out of it is because now you're selecting which opinions are hateful and which are not hateful. And in the process of restricting hate speech, Facebook sometimes will take down posts that are like civil rights activists flagged as hate speech, right? Or in the process of regulating nudity or pornographic material, Facebook will take down like mother's breastfeeding or something like this. And now there is a current, I guess, live debate about how free the speech should be on Twitter with like Elon Musk's potential purchase of it. And on the one hand, it's very relaxing when we don't have to be subjected to certain like barrages of claims on Twitter. On the other hand, I think there is a rightful view that like any time these social media platforms try to, try, try, I think genuinely try to like control the free speech landscape on their platforms, it gets administered in a fairly partisan way. And that's not good. And it's not good for free speech values. And so does that mean there are no solutions? No, but it's really thorny. You know, I, I do think social media platforms should experiment with their own policies. Reddit has its own policies. It creates a different free speech landscape than, say, Facebook, which has its own policies. In terms of, I don't know if you want me to talk about, like, fake news in particular oh, or wow. things like that. Okay, um, so in terms of the governmental efforts to combat what we see as, like, bots or people purposely spreading what we call disinformation. So not just misinformation, people are incorrect, or like there's a difference of opinion on how to interpret data on some con contested issue, but actual disinformation, like purposeful lies. 
there is a range of views currently percolating in the scholarship and also kind of in, in popular discourse about how much power the government does have to regulate disinformation. That's because of this case called United States versus Alvarez, where a man was lying about having received the Congressional Medal of Honor. The court said, you cannot just criminalize lying unless it's connected to a specific concrete harm. So like fraud or perjury, the court's processes or things like that. And the reason we can't just criminalize lying is because we don't want what the court says is Oceana's ministry of truth. Why should the government be able to decide what is true and what is not true? It generally, historically, cannot be trusted to do so in an even-handed way. However, different scholars have different views about how broadly to read Alvarez. And so some scholars say Alvarez is quite narrow. It says you cannot just criminalize lies altogether. Like you can't just have a statute that doesn't distinguish between public lies or private lies, but there are certain types of lies potentially you can criminalize. I mean, lying is not irrelevant to whether or not the government can criminalize speech because it criminalizes perjury, it criminalizes, you know, lying on official documents. And so maybe there is some leeway for the government to target purposeful ways of manipulating the public interest. I think Alvarez will have to be clarified. My personal view is that Alvarez should be read a bit more broadly than that. And then, of course, there's what do we do about like defamation from the media and libel and whether or not we overturn New York Times versus Sullivan, but the we are currently, like all of us, scholars, members of the public, judges, trying to figure out how to solve this problem without intruding on First Amendment rights. Well, and you know, as as you said, so the government intrusion here is certainly a big challenge. What I wonder is, and although this likely might also end up in the realm of government regulation, so probably a non-starter is. Is there something about the algorithms potentially that social media platforms use that, and, and you know, as I mentioned, like once you sort of click on some links, like that's really all the types of news that you see are either those sources or those similar type subjects. So is there room within the algorithm to encourage people? And again, like I said, I don't think the government could mandate that because that gets back into sort of telling newspapers what they can and, and radio stations and TV stations what they can and cannot report. But is that something that social media platforms should be thinking about and considering as to help break these silos? Yeah, I mean, I would love it, right? I, th I think that social media companies, and I, I'm sure they're thinking about this too, are now trying to take an active role in not harming the democracy, right? Or not harming discourse. But algorithms are created by human beings. Yeah. So I don't know, while they can maybe eliminate some human discretion and some human error to restrict speech that's potentially not in a fair way, I don't know if we can get rid of all of it. Um, you know, one could, if one were uh, wanted to be very aggressive about sort of re-engineering the dramatic problems we're experiencing, one could say, these platforms don't have as many free speech rights as say an individual. And so more restrictions are available for say, telling Google it can't do things with its algorithm. But I, I, I mean, I just think it would be tough to say that, the, that they have no free speech rights, but you know, lots of people want to regulate say Twitter as a public utility. I think that would be, highly problematic from a First Amendment perspective, but you would have to come to the conclusion that Twitter, say, doesn't have the same First Amendment rights as like the New York Times, because it's a platform for speech as opposed to its own speaker. Right. Well, and that certainly gets into some of the challenges because the platforms are platforms for a reason. There was a lot of lobbying to make sure that they were, that the rules around platforms were different than the rules around media. And so now we're seeing sort of the, I guess it's the growth of that in terms of the uncontemplated challenges when people were considering this 20, 25, 30 years ago, and yet here we are. Oh yeah, like uh, section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So this 
insulates platforms from liability if they host third-party speech. And it really allowed a lot of American internet companies and platforms and websites to grow because it said, if you post an article, say in the New York Times and a bunch of people comment, and some of those comments involve libel or something like this, you can't hold the New York Times responsible for that. And it was designed to encourage them to try to police comments without worrying that that would mean they're now taking on liability. And it's really allowed something like TikTok to flourish because all sorts of stuff gets put on TikTok. And you know, TikTok has its own content regulation policies, potentially too strong policies, maybe in some cases. So now there are, I think, proposals to reform Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. I think people are just trying to think through ways of doing this. One thing I wanted to mention with respect to Google is this right to be forgotten that exists in the EU that could never exist. Well, I don't want to say never because, you know, who knows (laughs) what'll happen jurisprudentially in the future, but currently would be unthinkable in America, uh, related to sort of the consequentialist effects of speech harm. So in the EU, they have a right that here would exist in tension with the right to free speech. In many European countries, the right to privacy is broader than the right to free speech. Whereas here, when we do this balance, individuals are allowed to intrude your privacy a lot more and publish things, and it just gets protected as free speech. And, And In the EU, if there's some piece of information like you went through bankruptcy 20 years ago and it's still on the internet and it's highly embarrassing to you and it's not really that relevant to the current public interest, you can petition for Google to just take it off its search algorithm. And you have a right to do that. And then Google has to apply some sort of framework about how important the speech is and things like that. And, you know, they're trying to deal with not necessarily lies, this is all truthful speech, which is why we likely can't touch it, right? But the really harmful effects of speech that just follows you forever once it's on the internet. And I think in America, we've come to the conclusion, and I personally agree with this conclusion, although reasonable minds can differ about it, that you can't take truthful speech away. What can we do with false speech? you know, that's a much more difficult question, but then you still get to the problem of what scholars call the epistemic arbiter, which is who gets to decide what is false and what is not false. Yeah, is it it sufficient that I can present evidence to show that this particular piece of information that's out there about me is inaccurate? And then what, if any obligation, does that person or does that platform, actually, usually not a person, does that platform have to actually listen to me and and do something about it. And it's much tougher because the issues that really impact the public interest, these contested issues where people say, this is fake news, or this is really manipulating the public and it's having huge harmful impacts. Those issues are usually the ones where it's most difficult to determine whether something is true or not true. It involves interpretations. I mean, we're talking, you know, COVID policies, climate change, election results. I mean, I have my own opinions, right? And I, you know, I feel fairly persuaded by a lot of them, but these are the issues where you can't just point at some photograph and say, here is my indisputable proof, which means that anyone who is tasked with, any regulator who is tasked with, or any court that is tasked with administering a scheme where we try to police speech has the kind of responsibility I don't think any of us would feel that comfortable with people having, which is deciding what is true and what is not true. But that leads back to your question, which is like, so do we just throw up right. throw up our hands oh, well, there? Right. And we could potentially have a very high bar, which is, you know, and courts administer high bars, New York Times versus Sullivan for uh, suing a newspaper for defamation. If you're a public figure, you have to prove malice with respect to falsity. So not just that the newspaper said something that was wrong and it harmed your reputation, but that they said something, there's the concrete harm, by the way, it harmed your reputation, right? But that they said something that was reckless with regard to the truth or intentionally false. And some people have said, potentially, we should import this actual malice standard and just say, you can't be sued for spreading lies, say, about a communicable disease or something like this, right, or preventing it. You can't be sued for that unless someone can prove actual malice, that you purposely spread these lies. 
And then all cases where you can't show actual malice get dismissed as a matter of law. And so it's not that injurious to free expression because we have a really high bar before juries can weigh on it, in on it. I think Alvarez might stand in the way of that because if we're talking about sort of lies to the public interest, that's very different than these concrete harms that Alvarez talked about. Also, then juries are weighing things that are very different than, you know, did Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's relationship involve domestic abuse, which is not entirely <laughs> obvious, right, but like is more easily provable than some of these harms that are affecting the public interest where people may be potentially lying. Yep. Although one of the things that came to mind when you were talking about actual harm is sort of, you know, and I feel like this pops up in some teen TV show usually every year is the concept of revenge porn. And so that, you know, all of a sudden that gets spread around. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to see the value in that. And there clearly is malice intended. Um, and so that, that feels like that should be then a fairly easy thing to analyze and decide this shouldn't this shouldn't be yeah so revenge porn is actually an example of something that i included in free speech consequentialism as speech the government can potentially restrict because the harm it causes resembles a conduct type harm instead of a speech harm i don't feel great about this analogy but the I mean, the fact of the matter is Revenge porn is criminalized in a few jurisdictions. Nobody seems to be like raising huge First Amendment issues right. with it. And, and what I say is the conduct harm it resembles is a bit of a breach of contract. Even if you engage in consensual sort of picture taking or things like that with someone, and then they legally have this photo. In most cases, they're now allowed to distribute it, right? If they own the speech, but it was kind of taken under the assumption that that would not happen. And breach of contract, even if it ends up restricting speech, can certainly be regulated. So if you and I enter into a non-disclosure agreement and then you disclose, say my middle name or something, I say, you can't release my middle name and you disclose my middle name and I sue you, you can't raise a First Amendment defense and say, well, this court can't hold me responsible for my speech because that's a First Amendment problem because we entered into this contract, right? And so that doesn't target the message of what you're saying. It's just upholding this contractual right, which is a common law right. And so I think if you want to think of revenge porn through the lens of like when the speech was created, it was with the understanding that, that it wouldn't be released because otherwise it wouldn't be revenge porn, right? It would just be pornography that is consented to. So, you know, revenge porn hasn't presented a ton of First Amendment challenges. I think there could be one. And yeah, I, I definitely think you could see one made, but it's, it's, it's not very popular to say, oh, well, my, my freedoms are being infringed upon because I couldn't like right. post pictures of you <laughs> that I have that you did that are naked that you don't want me to have on the internet. Right, right. Although that makes me wonder then if you know, breach of contract might be an easy way, easy being relative there, to, to work around this challenge that uh, next time a platform updates its T's and C's, I might have to read those a little more carefully. <laughs> so this is one way that the public could potentially go after social media platforms. You cannot necessarily tell them how to work their speech algorithms, but if they tell the public, we are fair, we are nonpartisan, or we restrict this, and we, or we don't restrict this, or here's what we do with your information, here's what we don't, and, and they are misrepresenting that, now you have a claim that is unrelated to their expression. It's about their kind of behavior with respect to consumers, you know, unfair trade policies or deceptive trade practices or things like that. And so, yeah, I have never fully looked into what some of these social media platforms terms of service are, but that could be an area for litigation if people were and, and I think it has been in the past. Um, I, I know Facebook has been investigated by Congress several times based on its terms of service and things like that. But then there's also the problem, is the government going after Facebook in a retaliatory way for its speech? So and even investigating, 
I mean, investigations are valid if they're valid, right? But even investigating these companies can be chilling to speech. And if it's done for partisan reasons, then we should all be worried about that as well. Yes. So this gives me a great opportunity to bring Justice Jackson into this conversation because one of his most favorite famous speeches, the federal prosecutor speech, really outlines sort of the, the great power that a prosecutor has and how they have to be judicious in its exercise. So, you know, since they get to control who is investigated, what happens with that information, what goes to court, what doesn't. And this feels like, so as, as you were just saying, the government has to be very aware of the great power that it has here to not seem, because we certainly don't want to set up a system where every time an administration changes parties that now whole swaths of people that feels very, um, Tudor England to me, that all of a sudden great swaths of people are now concerned that their way of life is kind of illegal. A, a, a little oversimplification there, but. Yeah. Well, and the government is allowed to speak. So the government as speaker is also an entity, right? The government can put forth anti-smoking ads, right? Without having to say, but also smoking is good, right? It does not have to do that. And so there's this line between when is the government just exercising its power? Government doesn't really have rights, but we could talk about it in terms of power. When is the government exercising its power to speak? And when is it doing that in a way that's actually infringing other people's speech? And we see this when politicians use their platforms to kind of go after private companies. And then the question is, okay, well, are they just using their legitimate power to express, or is this governmental actor using his or her legitimate power, their legitimate power to go after these companies? Or is this starting to become something that looks like retaliatory or censorious? And you know, with the uh, disinformation governance board, right? I, they, I, that board, which recently got disbanded, you know, I think there was a bunch of misinformation swirling around like about that board in particular. And it, I think it, its design was to target and have a coordinated response to mostly foreign disinformation threats. But, you know, the problem is, and, and I think this was somewhat of a legitimate fear that, well, once you start telling people what is and is not disinformation, is that is that just the government's rightful prerogative to weigh in on these debates and speak? Or is does that start becoming now the government is legitimating or delegitimating individual speakers in a way that corrupts the marketplace of ideas and is too censorious? So all of these lines have not been drawn recently enough since the age of media. And I'm not saying we need to redraw the doctrine. I don't think the doctrine should change very much, but we just don't really know how to apply a lot of these concepts to the new free speech landscape that we're experiencing. And courts are always behind because the law is supposed to proceed incrementally. Like it's, we're not supposed to see radical changes. Like that's not how the doctrine is supposed to evolve. We've had a lot of conversations over the last couple of years about how the judicial system tends to be more reactive. Like you, you don't, you don't really want them to be out in front on most things. I mean, obviously we've had um, more proactive courts and things like that, but for the most part, it is, it is catching up with where people are versus leading them. And then the public reads these opinions and they're like, these people don't understand the internet <laughs> at all, right? But, but I do think it's, it's okay for courts to be a little bit behind and maybe even a moderate amount behind the times because they have to wait for full records and they have to you know, percolate on how the doctrine should affect things and also facts are changing fairly rapidly. But at some point the courts have to catch up and, and we have to think about, and I've been thinking about, and this is kind of a first principles-y type issue, but I am a true believer in the marketplace of ideas. I mean, one reason I became a scholar is because I just believe that progress depends on open access, easy access to information. And what we have right now is the easiest access to information we've ever had and the easiest ability to speak that we've ever had, the most democratized, free speech environments and the easiest ways of coordinating. And I have been ruminating on, don't hold this against me, but I have been ruminating on, is this actually aiding progress or not? Hmm. 
because I, because I have always conducted myself to believe in that. Now, I'm not saying that means we should start regulating things. That's usually not the right solution. But like, I think people, if I'm becoming skeptical, then many people are becoming skeptical, I think, of unregulated free speech environments and whether or not they actually lead to progress and truth. Well, it's interesting. So to go back, so in 1919, because I love when I can pull Jackson into this, Jackson was here in Jamestown. He was setting up his legal practice. Well, set up it. So he's working, he's building his reputation and a very prominent socialist was coming to Jamestown to, to, to give a speech. And the mayor of the town at that time asked Jackson and a couple of other lawyers to basically be a panel to listen to this speech and to censor it if they thought it needed to be censored. So 1919, just finishing World War I, socialism, always sort of a, a boogeyman word without people necessarily understanding what, what that means. But so Jackson and his cohorts listen to the speech. The, the speaker is allowed to speak all the way through. And then he writes a letter to the mayor and to the newspaper the following week saying uh, something along the lines of our founders knew what they were doing in terms of free speech and the First Amendment. And they knew that free speech and free press is the greatest safety valve that they could have devised. And they thought that because it gave people an opportunity to air their grievances. And, and then, and this is the part that I find key for today, and discuss them and solicit votes and carry on their opposition peaceably. And, you know, and so like the idea is you have to get these ideas out there because that's the only way they can be addressed. And so he does go on to say that if you start suppressing speech and start suppressing gatherings, that's when you get to mob violence and covert acts and, and things like that. So, I, you know, I'm with you. I have always been a fan of the marketplace of ideas. And as, as I started this conversation off with, what I'm really struggling with now and really thinking through is maybe we do need some more regulation. I mean, if you spend any time on Twitter and I do variably, like I do and then I stop and then I do again because it is a great place to learn a lot in a short amount of time. At the same time, the most thoughtful moderated voices usually get the least attention. Yep. I don't know how to design an algorithm and I don't think Twitter is incentivized to design an algorithm that like boosts more sophisticated, less inflammatory takes on current events. But certainly what is what is happening right now on these platforms is the hottest takes that generate the most controversy are getting amplified. And then I think people that are more thoughtful and moderated in their day-to-day -day lives exist in a much more radical place or assume the world is much more radical than it is. And it's, it's really becoming quite divisive. I've also been thinking about this in terms of, cause I follow and I'm in academia. So I follow sometimes, and some people think this is a moral panic. I think it's maybe kind of a significant problem but I can see both sides on this. Um, students shutting down speakers at university events. So, you know, at a private institution, we don't have like the school has to allow this speaker if they allow other speakers. And if not, you have a First Amendment problem of viewpoint discrimination. That would be a public university. At a private university, then we don't have those sort of problems. But you do have the free speech values problem, which is when students coordinate to decide that someone's speech is too harmful to be aired, we cannot have academic discourse around it. I think this is highly concerning, especially in an academic environment where we're supposed to take a step back, not think about the harms from speech, but just sort of inherently debate it to learn things and, and talk amongst ourselves. At the same time, I think people are drawing different lines about what speech is and is not too harmful to be aired. So you and I have kind of said, oh, revenge porn, that's way too harmful to be aired, has no value. Right. I think a lot of these discussions taking place on college campuses, I would say, still within the realm of debate, even if I find them offensive myself, 
but many people are coming to the conclusion they're too harmful to be aired and shutting it down. And, and that's also kind of a problem for free speech values. It's not governmental censorship necessarily, but it does have a censorious aspect to it. Hmm. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about some of these sort of contemporary problems, challenges that we're seeing. And one of those so you sort of touched on like I I uh, have a similar thought process with campus speech because also it feels like 18 to 22, like I came into college, you know, knowing exactly who I was and exactly what I thought. And by the time I left college, I had no idea about any of that. So, you know, so this is also the time when you're supposed to be challenging and not that that shouldn't continue all of your life, but especially sort of in this formative adult stage, that feels like really the time where you should be confronted with ideas and speakers and people you might not have sought out on your own in order to, again, really have a, a broad grounding to really understand this is why I feel this way. And also to be able to have that discourse of this is why I disagree with you and I can do that in a respectful way or in a, in a way that enables us to share and disagree but not walk away hating each other. Yeah, so I think the problem arises, so the way I run my classroom is I say, all opinions are welcome as long as you express them respectfully. When I was a law student, one of my professors said this to me, I really latched onto it. And I really try to inspire discussion. I think certain students will always feel chilled to speak because of public pressure. And I don't think all viewpoints are getting aired in the academic environment, but hopefully it's not coming from me. However, and I've discussed this with my own colleagues, we all have a different view about what it means to express things respectfully sure. and what it means to undermine someone. And a lot of these issues now get connected to identity, right? And so like, can you have a debate? What can you say about say abortion either way, before it becomes what someone would call disrespectful. I err on the side of like, say everything, but there are people who say, well, this implicates, you know, women's rights or this implicates like religion or this implicates things. And now you're no longer being respectful. Your views are directly undermining my identity or my experience. And that is giving people a lot of ammunition to keep ideas out of the public discourse or shame ideas. I'm not saying no ideas deserve shaming, but the, you know, the increase in attention to mental health and identity, and both of those things are generally public goods, I would say, but they haven't been great for creating free speech values, mm -hmm. right? I do think they exist in some tension with free speech values, and we're just going to have to resolve that somehow. I hope we resolve it in favor of free speech values, but I could see a world in which we don't, and, you know, maybe that is an, is an okay world as well. Yeah. Well, and so this also, so obviously in the news over the last couple of weeks with the leak from the Supreme Court, there has also been a fair amount of protests in what may be atypical places. So I think we're used to people protesting at the court or at the White House and things like that. But now they're protesting in front of the justices' houses. And yeah, I remember even during, well, the last administration too, people were being confronted in restaurants and out with their kids and things like that. So how do we think about protest as speech? And, and like, is there a right time and place? I, you know, I, that's obviously one of those other consequential discussions there, but... This is really tough for a lot of reasons because, and I think this is one of those rare, beautiful moments when we can try to think about this in a nonpartisan way. We can truly take a principled approach to free speech because you can imagine any number of people getting angry at a Supreme Court decision and protesting at a justice's house. So this is an opportunity to craft our views it's currently associated with the leak of the Dobbs opinion, but there are ways that we can think about this not connected to sure. political expediency. So could you have a time, place, manner restriction saying something like, you cannot protest within 50 feet of a Supreme Court justice's house? Something like this, right? Probably not. <laughs> um, it would be hard to call it content neutral 
you could call it a time, place, matter restriction. It'd be hard to call. So content neutrality means you're not targeting the message. You're just targeting the volume or the place. And, and the government has a lot more leeway to enact content neutral restrictions than content based restrictions, which are kind of as a default considered pretty impermissible. They get what's called strict scrutiny. Um, I could imagine the courts or a court saying something like there is a significant interest in protecting the independence of the judicial process. Part of what is going on here is the Supreme Court is supposed to be insulated from popular views. They decide whether or not there's a constitutional right that overturns majority rule, right? They decide, is there a 14th Amendment due process right at stake? And if there is, then the states or the democracy don't get to decide. Right? If there isn't, then it goes back to the states. But that means that they are necessarily going to be undermining the democratic process. And if they're too concerned about what the people think, they cannot exercise independent judicial judgment. At the same time, if they're totally divorced from like what the population believes, that's also like a weird problem. But I think it's bad form <laughs> to protest at Supreme Court Justice Assassins. I think it's potentially intimidating. Is it constitutional? It, it, I would say, you know, or or do you have a constitutional right to do that? I think there's a pretty strong argument that unless you're being intimidating or violating some sort of noise ordinance that you are allowed to do that. But it, I do think it is a bit of a shame, but you know, I, I, I understand, you know, people's desire to like have their voices heard and stuff like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, we are approaching the end of our time together. And so I have one question before I get to the lightning round questions. And you sort of touched on it a little bit in your last answer is that we seem to be struggling, the public, we the public, seem to be struggling with our perception of the court. And so I, I'm curious as to your thoughts uh, as to how this, like the interplay of this, like, is there... I don't even know what the exact question is I want here. Like, is there, should we, the public, be adjusting how we think about things? Is it, you know, is it that we have just become so used to something that was never really tangible? Or is there, is there something, is there a way to correct this that helps reorient the public's perception of the court? Okay. Yeah. This is, this is really tough stuff. And it used to be, I think up until fairly recently, that the court was the last institution that the public respected and trusted. And then you had a bunch of 5-4 judicial opinions that made people think the court is just acting politically. Now, in most cases, you do not see 5-4 opinions. And there's certainly plenty of cases, and they're important enough to get to the Supreme Court, where you see unanimity. Yep. So. Uh, my view is the court is generally not acting politically. However, what people say is, well, they are when it matters. They are in Bush v. Gore. They are in Citizens United. Now, my view of Citizens United is that like the public has been inflamed to think that what the court was saying is corporations are people when in fact corporations have long had First Amendment rights like the New York. And so I think part of the problem is the media inflaming the public that doesn't have a lot of exposure to either legal doctrine or the court's processes. And then they react, the public reacts in a partisan way, even if the court is not being partisan. But the fact of the matter is sometimes the court is being partisan. And it decides very important rights. And the public, I think, is becoming, maybe because of social media, increasingly aware of the cases where it's hard not to look at the court with at least some skepticism. You know, many people want to do things like, say, give the court less power. The court should defer to the democratic process more. But what they don't realize is that also means the court can't declare rights that they might like, right? If the court has less power, that leads to saying there is no constitutional right to abortion, right? Like, let leave it to the states. There are no expansive First Amendment rights. There are no expansive. And so, you know, I like that the court has a lot of discretion to decide our constitutional rights, counter majoritarian rights. But, but one thing to do is term limits. I don't totally support term limits, but I, it is a sensible solution because I, I think courts need to be independent, but you know, you could do term limits. I don't love that. I think the way for the court to restore its perception, and I hope Justice Roberts gets a bit of a handle on this, is to start taking cases that are less controversial and show the public that it's doing this in an honest way. 
the leaks are not going to help. Leaks are never going to help. But now people are calling for more leaks. So we might be in a doom spiral. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, dear. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Again, always food for thought. Okay. I'm already going to should we be doing a program about doom yeah. spirals? So yes. So, okay. Our lightning round. This is my favorite part of every conversation. What do you wish people were paying more attention to? Uh, gosh. Okay. I wish this is a slight alteration of your question, but I wish instead of relying on other people's accounts of judicial opinions, they would spend more time reading the judicial opinions themselves. This requires more attention spans, which we are all losing. And I think that is like the most fundamental problem that we have, like literacy and attention spans. But I wish people would, would go to the primary sources of things. Instead of trusting the media's account of an interview, read the actual text. Instead of trusting the media's recitation of what a Supreme Court opinion says, go to the actual opinion. And if you don't have time to do that, maybe reserve judgment about how inflamed you get about it. I would, I would add a caveat then as well, especially for judicial opinions, that some of the language that is used in the opinions also probably needs to be modified because they are not always, and I will throw Justice Jackson in, in here as well, they're not always, not always written with that kind of clarity. And so really trying to parse through so, you know, it reminds me of like trying to read a contract and you get to the end, it's like, okay, but you have to go back to subpart C to yeah. sort of answer this question down here. <laughs> well, and it's like, how accessible should the law, I mean, we go to law school for three years because we're now trained in words that have very specific conceptual meaning yep. and the court should be allowed to use them. I don't think you can make all complex ideas totally accessible, that's but that's something else. Like we should all have a little bit of humility about things we, we aren't necessarily experts in. Okay, second question. What do you think are the greatest threats to democracy? The greatest threats to democracy. I guess it depends how you define democracy, but right now my biggest issue is hyperpartisanship, I would say, uh, and sort of disingenuous framing and straw manning of the other side. I wish there were more cooperation among people who disagree. Okay. So the flip side of that, because I am a hopeful person at heart, what do you think are some of the greatest opportunities for democracy or democratic institutions? Yeah, I think I really do on some level love it that everybody gets a voice. And if you appeal to enough people and if you have something interesting enough to contribute, which I believe everyone truly does, your voice can be heard. And I, I do think we're at a place where we are absorbing a lot of voices that haven't maybe historically been heard. And I think that's great for democracy. Right. Okay. Who else is doing interesting work? Well, who else is doing interesting work? Well, there's a ton of great First Amendment scholars that I like. Um, Rod Smola, Marty Reddish, Eugene Volokh. I guess um, there's a good podcast, Divided Argument, that has two different yep. um, people in it. Kathleen Sullivan has been sort of my First Amendment hero, and she was the dean of Stanford when I went to law school there. So I don't know how much she's currently doing, but everything she says, I think, is, is very interesting and on point. Um, Jonathan Chait has a lot of great stuff. The Coddling of the American Mind, which is a bit controversial, but I think is absolutely worth a read for anyone who cares about some of the issues we've touched upon. Okay. Uh, he, he wrote uh, The Coddling of the American Mind with Greg Lukianoff. Okay, great. And you actually answered the last question as I, as I was going through that. So thank you for giving me some suggested readers, podcasters, and thinkers too. That's perfect. For our audience, in lieu of a tea in June, we will be hosting our Al and Marge Brown lecture as a webinar on that fourth Thursday, which is June 23rd at 2 p.m. rather than 3 p.m. because our lecturer is in the United Kingdom. So our lecturer is Professor Richard Overy, a renowned World War II historian and author. His lecture is titled Filed Away, the Western Powers, Soviet Crimes, and the Nuremberg Tribunal. So please join us for this talk by registering for this webinar on our website, uh, which is www.roberthjackson.org. Erica, thank you so much for joining me for tea today. I really appreciate it. This was wonderful. Thank you for chatting with me. Thank you. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law. 
the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our podcast is edited by Connor Keenan. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this episode was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a series of Facebook Live events produced by the Jackson Center, whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website, We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends.